Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Council of Life's Daily Nonpareil for Friday, January the 19th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story. Reynolds talks about reading. Iowa lawmakers hear presentation on school program. This is written by Robin Opsall of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Employees with the Iowa Reading Research Center meeting with lawmakers on Wednesday laid out strategies and curriculum being used in Iowa schools to improve reading proficiency for K-12 students. In particular, presenters at a Senate Education Committee meeting told lawmakers about the science of reading, methods used to help teach young students language and reading comprehension. They said the methods were based on decades of research in education and other fields like brain science. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds highlighted these education techniques in her condition of the state address at the beginning of the legislative session last week. She said one of her goals for the upcoming session was to invest in improving reading proficiency for Iowa students. Nina Lorimer Lorimer Easley, Assistant Director for Education and Outreach with the Research Center, told committee members that this method was not a fad, an ideology, or a political agenda. What the science of reading is, is a vast body of scientifically based research about reading issues, who struggles with reading, why they struggle, what we can do about why people are struggling, the best way to teach reading, she said. The simple explanation to this strategy, she said, is outlined simply as word recognition times language comprehension equals reading comprehension. This means that teaching children how to recognize words and what those words mean and how to figure out what new words mean is the best way to build literacy skills. Many of these strategies are already a part of the state's existing early literacy implementation, she said. A lot of what we talked about in the science of reading aligns with those things that were laid out in ELI quite some time ago, Lorimer easily said. So it's just bringing that to the next level and making sure that every educator in the state of Iowa is aware of this. The discussion of these teaching methods come after Iowa statewide assessment of student progress results from the 2022-2023 school year found 34% of third graders were not yet proficient in English language art skills, while 56% were proficient and 10% were advanced. Multiple studies have found that students who are not able to read by third grade face much greater challenges in the future academic success and beyond. The governor said in her address that while Iowa's scores are higher than many other states, something is clearly not working. Nationally, our reading scores have held steady over the last few years because, unlike so many states, we kept our kids in school throughout the pandemic, Reynolds said. But holding steady isn't good enough, especially when reading is the foundation of learning. Reynolds has called for multiple initiatives to improve reading abilities for young Iowa students, as well as new requirements for teachers to use the science of reading teaching methods. Her priorities for the 2024 legislative session include requiring Iowa teacher licensure candidates in early childhood education, elementary, K-12 reading, and literacy preparation, as well as special education programs past the foundations of reading assessment to graduate and investing $3.1 million for current teachers to take and pass the same test within the next three years. 
Senator Julian Garrett, a Republican from Indianola, said he had concerns that the science of reading approach minimized the importance of teaching phonics in reading. He said that as the father of three children, he relied on teaching phonics to help his children learn to read before they entered the K-12 school system. In my opinion, phonics is the best way to teach reading, Garrett said, and I'm not going to say it's the only way, but it always concerns me when I see a lot of stuff like this, and it just seems to me you're de-emphasizing phonics, and I think that's not a good idea. Lorimer easily said phonics is a cornerstone of the teaching strategy, but it is not the only component in the teaching method. Oftentimes, when we talk about a solely phonics approach, it gets perceived that until after third grade, we're just reading, you know. Tom and Pat fell on the hill, and that's not the case, she said, saying that comprehension of words and understanding of content in fields from social studies to science is also important to teaching students how to read. Iowa's not the only state to look at changing its reading education requirements. According to reporting by Education Week, 32 states as well as the District of Columbia have passed laws or implemented policies related to evidence-based reading instruction between 2013 and 2023. Many of these changes followed the increase in reading scores that Mississippi students in grades K-3 through saw in national assessments following a system overhaul to focus on the science of reading strategies. The change was credited for the state's move from the second-lowest-ranked state for fourth-grade reading scores in 2013 to 21st in 2022. Another component of the proposed shift in Iowa's reading education strategies focuses on struggling students. The governor's priorities include plans to require personalized reading plans for students deemed not proficient in reading by third grade through sixth grade. The governor also proposed having school districts give parents of students who aren't reading proficient in third grade the option to hold their children back a year to improve outcomes. Lawmakers asked the speakers about the assistance provided to struggling students. The Research Center works with Iowa's nine area education agencies providing special education services to students. Ben Wallazer, Interim Director of Operations and Project Management for the Center, said the Iowa Reading Research Center partners with AEAs to provide support for students with special educational needs. The Research Center, which formerly had a larger focus on dyslexia, has worked with training at least one staff member at each agency as a dyslexia specialist. Senator Claire Selsey, a Democrat from West Des Moines, asked about funding for dyslexia instructors in Iowa. Wallazer said he did not have numbers on the funding on hand, but that state appropriations money to toward providing dyslexia-specific instruction programs and endorsements for Iowa educators. Reynolds announced plans to allow school districts to pursue contracts with private companies or partner with other school districts to provide the specialized support required for students with disabilities. Under current state law, Iowa's AEAs are required to provide these services. Wallazer said that in the present framework, AEAs partner with the center to provide support for school districts making changes to their literacy programs. When we go into a partnership with the district, 
We assume that it's going to be a partnership that's going to take a year or longer, he said, and we can be at the table to do that to a point until we have to move on to another district. So the AEA is really a long-term partner in the project or process for us. In the other article from the front page of the Nonpareil, Clorinda facility cited for ignoring AIDS's concerns. This is by Clark Kaufman of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. A Clorinda nursing home is facing potential fines for allegedly ignoring the concerns of two nursing assistants about a resident who subsequently died. On November 27, 2023, two certified nursing assistants at Azraya Health informed the home's on-duty nurse that a female resident had experienced a significant change in her mental and physical condition. The two CNAs had noticed the woman's oxygen saturation levels had dropped to 63%, well below the 88% level that typically calls for immediate medical intervention. In addition, the woman's blood pressure had dropped to 79 over 39, a dangerously low level. When the nurse was notified, she told the CNAs to place the woman on bottled oxygen. The CNAs did so, but after 20 minutes, the woman's oxygen saturation was at 92%, still abnormally low. And the woman was confused and appeared to be in pain. The two CNAs reported their concerns to the nurse again, but according to state inspectors, the nurse did not seem worried or concerned and simply replied, Okay. Later in the day, when the woman's oxygen levels dropped to 72%, the nurse asked the CNAs to increase the flow of bottled oxygen to the resident. The aides allegedly did so and then reported the resident's vital signs never improved for the rest of their shift. When the overnight nurse came on duty at 10 p.m., one of the CNAs pulled her aside, told her what was happening, and stated the woman needed to go to the hospital. According to inspectors, the overnight nurse agreed and the resident was sent to the emergency room at 10.30 p.m., four hours after the aides had first reported their concerns. Within 24 hours, the resident was dead, with the cause of death listed as congestive heart failure. Later, in talking to state inspectors, the nurse, who was alleged to have been dismissive of the AIDS's concerns, denied being told any such concerns. When asked if anyone on the staff had told her the woman's blood pressure was low, the nurse said no. Inspectors alleged that when asked if anyone had reported the woman's oxygen saturation levels were low, the, worse, the nurse said no, but then said maybe. The home's director of nursing allegedly told inspectors she had not talked to the two CNAs who had cared for the resident prior to the de death and was unaware of any concerns they may have had. On the night in question, the CNAs had allegedly documented the resident's vital signs by writing them into what's called a CNA assignment and vital sheet that was then given to the director of nursing. Inspectors were unable to locate that sheet when reviewing the case and asked the director of nursing about the fact that the document was missing. The director of nursing said she was unsure why the document couldn't be located according to inspectors. The Iowa Department of Inspections and Appeals cited Azraya Health of Clorinda for medication and treatment violations, failure to respond to changes in a resident's condition, quality of care violations, and failure to meet standards related to competent nursing staff. 
a state fine of $11,750 has been held in suspension while the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services considers imposing a federal penalty. In February of 2022, Azraya Health of Clarinda was cited for failing to assure staff completed a complete and thorough physical assessment of a resident who had a change in condition that necessitated a transfer to a local emergency room. At the hospital, the medical staff had to open the resident's airway and have the person airlifted to a bigger hospital. The resident died in transit four hours after being transferred from the nursing home. A federal fine of $19,646,000 was implemented. CMS gives the Clorinda home a three-star overall rating on its five-star scale. The home has a one-star rating for quality of care, but a three-star rating based on inspection results. Now that brings us to an article entitled, School Approves Israel-Hamas Ceasefire Resolution. This is written by Joey Capaletti of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Ann Arbor, Michigan. A public school district in Michigan approved a resolution calling for a bilateral ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war while also encouraging its teachers to discuss the conflict in its classroom following an emotionally charged meeting Wednesday. The resolution approved by the Ann Arbor Public Schools Board followed a meeting of more than five hours that stretched into the early hours of Thursday after 120 people gave public comments in both support and opposition to the resolution. Tensions remained high throughout the meeting in Ann Arbor, a community close to 40 miles west of Detroit and home to the University of Michigan. Similar tensions have been seen across the nation in response to the war in Gaza, which is now entering its fourth month. The conflict has divided college campuses where long-simmering tensions are occasionally erupting in violence and shattering the sense of safety that makes college hubs of free discourse. Dozens of U.S. cities, including Ann Arbor, approved ceasefire resolutions that have no legal authority but reflect the pressure on local governments to speak up on the Israeli military campaign. The resolution passed in Ann Arbor was one of the first times that a public school system in Michigan considered such a statement, said Don Wotruba, executive director of Michigan Association of School Boards, prior to the scheduled vote. What they're thinking about doing would be pretty rare if not the first time, particularly as it's related to a more international situation, what Ruba said. The district expresses support for bilateral ceasefire in Gaza and Israel, according to the resolution, and encourages educators within the Ann Arbor School District to facilitate informed and respectful dialogue about the conflict. Four of the seven board members voted in favor of the resolution, with two abstaining from the vote. Rima Mohammed, who is Palestinian, was one of the most outspoken members in support of it. This resolution says that kids who have names like mine are seen, heard, and valued, Mohammed said just prior to the vote. Some parents in the district, which serves almost 17,000 students, expressed outrage about the resolution, and a petition opposing it collected almost 2,000 signatures. This resolution does not help advance the quality of life of one single child in this district, said Daniel Sorkin, a parent of two students in the district who spoke out against the resolution Wednesday. Tasneem Madani 
a student teacher in the district, supported the resolution and stressed its importance, saying that our students are watching us. It is my responsibility, particularly as an English teacher, to help students develop the skills to engage in informed academic dialogue in safe spaces, Madani said uh, at Wednesday's meeting. Other schools across the country have contemplated similar resolutions. In California, the Oakland Unified School District has considered a resolution calling for a ceasefire and release of hostages in Israel and Palestine, but has yet to pass it. Ann Arbor has long been known for its progressive politics, but the city and its university has found itself divided over the Gaza conflict beyond the confines of its public schools. Almost 6,500 Jewish students attend the University of Michigan, 15% of its entire student population, according to the University of Michigan Hillal. A significant number of Arab American students also attend the university, which is near one of the largest Muslim populations in the nation. Our next article comes from Uvalde, Texas, and it's entitled DOJ says police fumbled. New report identifies cascading failures in response to massacre. It's written by Eric Tucker, Acacia Coronado, Lindsay Whitehurst, and Jake Blyberg of the Associated Press. Police officials who responded to the deadly Uvalde, Texas elementary school shooting waited far too long to confront the gunman, acted with no urgency in establishing a command post and communicated inaccurate information to grieving families, according to a Justice Department report released Thursday that identifies cascading failures in law enforcement's handling of the massacre. The Justice Department report, the most comprehensive federal accounting of the maligned police response to the May 24, 2022 shooting at Robb Elementary School, catalogs a sweeping array of training, communication, leadership, and technology problems that federal officials say contributed to the crisis lasting far longer than necessary. Had law enforcement agencies followed generally accepted practices in active shooter situations and gone right after the shooter and stopped him, lives would have been saved and people would have survived, Attorney General Merrick Garland said Thursday at a news conference in Uvalde after Justice Department officials briefed family members on the findings of the investigation. The nearly 600-page Justice Department report adds to the public's understanding of how officers failed to stop an attack that killed 19 children and two staff members. The problems began almost immediately with a flawed assumption by officers at the scene that the shooter was barricaded even as he continued to fire shots. That mindset permeated throughout much of the incident response as police, rather than rushing inside the classrooms to end the carnage, waited more than an hour to confront the gunman in what the report called a costly lack of urgency. The gunman, Salvador Ramos, was killed about 77 minutes after police arrived on the scene when a tactical team finally went into a classroom to take him down. The flawed initial response was compounded with the following in the following days by an ineptitude that added to family members' anguish, according to the report. A county district attorney told families that they would need to wait for an autopsy report before death notifications were made, prompting some to yell, What? Our kids are dead? 
No, no. In other cases, families were incorrectly told that a child survived when they had not. At one point, an official told waiting families that another bus of survivors was coming, but that was untrue. Next up, strikes against Houthis continue. Pakistani retaliation in in Iran kills at least nine, raising regional unease. This is written by Zeke Miller, Amer Madhani, Munir Ahmed, and John Gambrell of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Washington. U.S. forces conducted a fifth strike Thursday against Iranian-backed Houthi rebel military sites in Yemen as President Joe Biden acknowledged that the American and British bombardment had yet to stop the militants' attacks on vessels in the Red Sea that have disrupted global shipping. The latest strikes destroyed two Houthi anti-ship missiles that were aimed into the southern Red Sea and prepared to launch, U.S. Central Command said in a statement posted on social media. Biden said the U.S. would continue the strikes even though so far they have not stopped the Houthis from continuing to harass commercial and military vessels. When you say working, are they stopping the Houthis? No. Are they going to continue? Yes, Biden said in an exchange with reporters before departing the White House for a domestic policy speech in North Carolina. Hours after Biden spoke, Houthi Brigadier General Haya Sari said in a recorded statement that its forces carried out another missile attack against the U.S.-owned cargo ship Chem Ranger, Sari said the attack took place in the Gulf of Aden, the waters just south of Yemen. That attack did not affect the ship, U.S. Central Command said late Thursday. Thursday's strikes came after the U.S. military fired another wave of missiles the prior night against 14 Houthi-controlled sites. Despite sanctions and military strikes, including a large-scale operation carried out by U.S. and British warships and warplanes that hit more than 60 targets across Yemen, the Houthis kept harassing commercial and military ships. The U.S. strongly warned Iran to cease providing weapons to the Houthis. Meanwhile, Pakistan launched airstrikes Thursday against alleged militant hideouts inside Iran, killing at least nine people as it retaliated for a similar attack days earlier by Iran and raising tensions with its neighbor as conflict across the region escalates. The unprecedented attacks by both Pakistan and Iran on either side of their border appeared to target Baluch militant groups with similar separatist goals. The countries accuse each other of providing a haven to the groups. Netanyahu opposes any Palestinian state plan. Israeli Prime Minister vows to press ahead until Hamas destroyed. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Thursday rejected U.S. calls to scale back Israel's military offensive in the Gaza Strip or take steps toward the establishment of a Palestinian state after the war, drawing an immediate scolding from the White House. The tense back and forth reflected what has become a wide rift between the two allies over the scope of Israel's war and its plans for the future of the beleaguered territory. We obviously see it differently, White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby said. 
Netanyahu spoke just a day after U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Israel would never have genuine security without a pathway toward Palestinian independence. In a nationally televised news conference, Netanyahu struck a defiant tone, repeatedly saying that Israel would not halt its offensive until it realizes its goal of destroying Gaza's Hamas militant group and bringing home all remaining hostages held by Hamas. He rejected claims by a growing chorus of Israeli critics that those goals are not achievable, vowing to press ahead for many months. Congress votes to avert a government shutdown. Stopgap bill will fund operations at current levels to early March. Congress sent President Joe Biden a short-term spending bill on Thursday that will avert a looming partial government shutdown and fund federal agencies into March. The House approved the measure, 314 to 108, with opposition coming mostly from the more conservative members of the Republican conference. The action came a few hours after the Senate voted 77 to 18 to pass the bill. The measure extends current spending levels and buys time for the two chambers to work out their differences over full-year spending bills for the fiscal year that began in October. The temporary measures will run into March 1st for some federal agencies. Their funds were set to run out Friday. It extends the remainder of government operations to March 8th. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said the president would sign the resolution. Speaker Mike Johnson, a Republican from Louisiana, has been under pressure from his right flank to scrap a $1.66 trillion budget price tag he reached with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer this month for the spending bills. Johnson insists he will stick to the deal, and GOP centrists stood behind him. Hunter Biden agrees to private deposition. Hunter Biden agreed to appear before House Republicans for a private deposition next month, ending months of defiance from the president's son, who previously insisted on testifying publicly. The House Oversight Committee announced Thursday that the two parties agreed for Hunter Biden to sit for a deposition February the 28th. Hunter Biden's legal team confirmed news of the agreement Thursday night. Two committees reiterated that they intend to have him testify publicly sometime after his deposition. The deal concludes month of back and forth between President Joe Biden's son and Republicans investigating his overseas business dealings and for over a year in a so far futile effort to connect it to his father. Columnist concludes testimony in Trump suit. With former President Donald Trump not in the courtroom Thursday, a columnist who accused him of sexually attacking her concluded her testimony with an emphatic, emphatic denial that she benefited from publicly that publicity that followed the allegations. A Trump attorney tried to show the jury that E. Jean Carroll achieved the fame she desired after the publication of a memoir accusing Trump of raping her in a store dressing room in the 1990s. She responded, No, my status was lowered. I am partaking in this trial to bring my own reputation and status back. The testimony came on the third day of a trial in Manhattan Federal Court that will determine what damages, if any, Trump owes for remarks he made about Carroll when he was president. 
A jury already found Trump liable for sexually abusing Carol in 1996 and defaming her after his presidency. Trump was in Florida for his mother-in-law's funeral Thursday. The judge presiding over the Georgia prosecution of former President Donald Trump and others for efforts to overturn the 2020 election set a February 14th hearing Thursday on a motion alleging Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis was romantically involved with the special prosecutor she hired for the case. A judge was a judge sentenced Preston Walls, age 19, to 65 years in prison Thursday for killing two students in a January 23rd shooting at a Des Moines alternative school and wounding the founder. He must pay $150,000 to the students' families. The federal judge overseeing the paused 2020 election interference case against Donald Trump rejected his lawyer's bid Thursday to hold special counsel Jack Smith's team in contempt, but said no further substantive court filings should be submitted without permission. Wastewater testing does a, does a good job at detecting M-pox infections, U.S. health officials said in a report Thursday that bolsters a push to use sewage to track more diseases. Laying groundwork for impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, a House panel heard Thursday from parents seeking to link border policy to their daughter's deaths and a law professor warning against the effort. And Belgrude, Russia, canceled its traditional Orthodox Epiphany festivities Friday due to the threat of cross-border attacks by Ukraine. You are listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Parel on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments or concerns... On this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now we'll turn to today's obituaries, and there's only one obituary in today's nonpareil, and it's for Thomas H. Dunham, who is survived by wife Connie, children Todd, Chris, and Mary Beth, five grandchildren. Visitation Thursday, January the 25th from 5 to 7 p.m., followed by a vigil at 7 p.m. at West Center Chapel. Mass of Christian Burial Friday, January the 26th, 10.30 a.m. at St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church, 14330 Eagle Run Drive. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to Gabriel's Corner or KVSS Spirit Catholic Radio. Tom has made an anatomical donation to Creighton University Medical School, which will further medical education and advance medical science for the future. Now here's an article entitled, Don't Fall for the Call, How to Spot Social Security Scams and Protect Yourself. It's written by Wendy Whitney Vandiver of NerdWallet. When the Social Security Administration calls, you pick up. But between October 2022 and June 2023, more than 55,000 people who answered calls from what they thought was the government agency said they were scammed. Allegations of Social Security scams increased 61.7% in the quarters ending in June 2022 and June 2023, according to the Social Security Administration Office of the Inspector General. 
The most common tactic is simple. Scammers say they're with the Social Security Administration and ask for personal information or money. Imposter scans game victims' trust by appropriating federal agencies' authority, says Stacy Wood, the Molly Mason Jones Chair in Psychology at Scripps College in Claremont, California. Some impersonate officials with fake IDs or use caller IDs that resemble government phone numbers. So how do you know if a scammer is calling? If they tell you any of these four stories, it's time to hang up. Your social security number is suspended. A scammer tells you that your social security number is suspended and they need your personal information to reactivate it. The government doesn't suspend social security numbers. Fraudsters are after personal information to steal your identity. Second, your benefits are suspended. Perpetrators say your social security benefits are suspended. They'll ask for your social security number to verify your identity or say you need to pay a fee to have your benefits reinstated. You should hang up because both scenarios are bogus. The Social Security Administration doesn't call and ask for your social security number or charge you to correct your benefits. Number three, you can pay to increase your benefits. The caller says that they can increase your benefits for a fee. You should hang up because this is a scam that is commonly associated with the Social Security Administration's annual cost of living adjustment. Imposters offer to apply the adjustment if you pay for the service. The truth, the Social Security Administration automatically applies cost of living increases to benefits. Number four, you owe money that has to be paid immediately. The scammer says you owe money for a penalty or as a correction for an overpayment. They may threaten to suspend your benefits or have you arrested if you don't pay immediately. You should hang up because scammers often request payment through wire transfers, cryptocurrency, prepaid debit cards or gift cards, or by mailing cash, none of which the Social Security Administration accepts. Scammers like these payment methods because they are practically impossible to trace. Seniors are the biggest target. The Administration for Community Living, a division of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, announced in October that reports of scams targeting older adults were multiplying. Because Social Security is a significant income stream for older adults, they are often more likely to answer calls or respond to letters out of fear of missing something important, Woods says. Seniors also tend to be more lucrative targets. They have more assets, so it's just a better use of scammers' time to exploit older people, Woods says. Red flags that you're being scammed. You're likely being scammed if someone calls unexpectedly from the Social Security Administration. The Social Security Administration generally contacts beneficiaries through the mail, so be suspicious of any other contact method. Says there's a problem with your benefits. If there is an issue with your benefits, the Social Security Administration will send you a letter explaining how to correct it and whom to contact. Pressures you to respond immediately. The Social Security Administration gives you time to pay legitimate penalties and won't threaten to arrest or sue you if you wait to pay a debt. Requires you to pay to correct something. Social Security Administration corrects issues with your benefits and applies increases for free. 
Tips to protect yourself. Never give out personal information. Social Security will never reach out to ask for sensitive information already on file. Know what's available online. Scammers can find your personal information online. If someone has this information, it doesn't mean they're from the Social Security Administration. Investigate unexpected changes in your benefits. If your Social Security benefits decrease unexpectedly, ask why. If things are changing and you're not aware of why, the first thing you need to do is contact the Social Security Administration. And check your credit history. Check your credit reports with the credit bureaus, Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion for signs of identity theft. You can request a free credit report every year at annualcreditreport.com. Now we turn to the sports page and the men's college basketball top 25 roundup. South Florida overcomes 20-point deficit to stun number 10 Memphis. Kasim Pryor made a go-ahead free throw with four seconds left, and South Florida rallied from a 20-point deficit to stun number 10 Memphis 74-73 on Thursday night. Pryor finished with 21 points and 10 rebounds, and reserve Selton Miguel led USF with 23 points, going 5 of 10 from three-point range. The Bulls, with a record of 10 and 4, 3 and 1 in the American Athletic Conference, have won 8 of 9 and ended a 10-game winning streak for the Tigers, who hadn't lost since a narrow defeat at Mississippi on December the 2nd. With the game tied at 73 all, Pryor took an inbound pass alone in the paint and elevated for a dunk, but took a hard foul from Naquan Tomlin. Pryor made the first free throw but missed the second, and Memphis's Javon Quinterly missed a three-pointer at the buzzer. David Jones led Memphis with 25 points, and Quinterly finished with 15. Chris Youngblood had 13 points for USF. Memphis led 52-32 early in the second half, and USF responded by going on a 9-0 run with Pryor, Kobe Knox, and Brandon Stout each making a three. The Bulls inched closer throughout the period, and Jaden Reed tied it with a layup with 37 seconds left, his only basket of the game. A turnover by Quinterly helped set up USF for Pryor's decisive free throw. Jones had 18 points in the first half, including a run of 11 straight for Memphis, which led 47-32 to at the break. Number 14, Illinois, defeats Michigan. 88-73. to 73. Coleman Hawkins led four players in double figures with 21 points to go with 10 rebounds as Illinois won at Michigan. Quincy Guerrier had 16 points and 14 rebounds. Ty Rogers added 15 points and Marcus Damask had 15 for the fighting Illini. They trailed only once when Terrace Reed Jr. opened the scoring with a layup. Reed Jr. had 20 points to lead the Wolverines. Oliver Nakamhawa added 16, and Doug McDaniel 11 for Michigan, which lost for the sixth time in his last seven games. After Reed's opening basket, Illinois scored the next 11 points, but the Wolverines came back and got within 37-36 at halftime. Michigan tied it at 38 all early in the second, but the Illini took the lead again and led by 16 points en route to the victory, its sixth in its last eight games. 
Number 23, Florida Atlantic defeated Wichita State 86-77. Elijah Martin scored 22 points. John L. Davis added 19. And host Florida Atlantic rallied from an 11-point deficit in the second half to beat Wichita State. Martin had 16 points in the second half, and Davis had 14 after halftime for the Owls, who won their third straight. Vladislav Golden scored 17, and Trey Carroll added 10 off the bench for Florida Atlantic. Quincy Ballard scored 18 points on 8 for 10 shooting for Wichita State, which dropped its sixth straight. Now here's some NFL notes. Belichick plans seconds interview with Falcons. The Atlanta Falcons are planning for a second interview with Bill Belichick after talking with Philadelphia Eagles offensive coordinator Brian Johnson for the head coaching vacancy on Thursday. Belichick made the Falcons his first known interview on Monday since leaving the Patriots. Belichick won a record sixth Super Bowls in his 24 seasons with New England. He will be the first candidate to have a second interview with Atlanta. The team has not disclosed details of the second meeting with Belichick, age 71. The Falcons are looking for a successor to Arthur Smith, who was fired after his third straight 7-win, 10-loss finish. The plans for a second meeting between the Falcons and Belichick indicates an agreement on Belichick's possible role in player personnel decisions should he accept the job. Belichick had control of player personnel with New England. And from the Pittsburgh Steelers, Mike Tomlin remains on go in Pittsburgh, both in 2024 and likely beyond. The NFL's longest tenured head coach said Thursday he plans on returning to the Steelers for an 18th season, brushing aside speculation that he was on the cusp of burning out and considering taking a step back. From the Senior Bowl, Tennessee Titans defensive line coach Terrell Williams and New York Jets defensive coordinator Jeff Ulbrich will serve as head coaches at the Senior Bowl, which will be played on February the 3rd to cap a week-long audition for NFL prospects. San Diego Chargers, former University Stanford University coach David Shaw interviewed for Los Angeles' opening. Oh yeah, they're the Los Angeles Chargers now, not the San Diego Chargers. The Chargers announced the interview on Thursday. He is the 10th candidate to interview. Shaw did not coach last season and was an NFL Network analyst. And the Tennessee Titans announced Thursday it had finished a virtual interview with Carolina Panthers offensive coordinator Thomas Brown for their head coaching vacancy. That makes him the sixth different person to talk to Tennessee about its open job. Brown is the second black coach to interview with the Titans, both by video. In auto racing, Johnson, Noss, fittingly head into NASCAR Hall of Fame together. There were many times following Jimmy Johnson's 83 career NASCAR wins when trophy in hand and post-race obligations complete, his pending celebration would be instantly soured by the man who guided him to victory lane. Chad Noss wanted to extract the most out of Johnson all the time, and even after a win, the crew chief could still find areas of improvement. There were many times when we were in the media center collecting the trophy and we leave there and as soon as the door was shut, Chad is like, hey man, that second stint, what happened on that restart? What about this? We got to tighten up, Johnson told the Associated Press. And I'd be like, give me until tomorrow, okay? 
We're leaving with the trophy. Tomorrow you can give me crap. Right now? Don't. The push and pull between driver and crew chief worked for a record-tying seven cup championships, including an unprecedented five consecutive titles. Johnson drove the NOS-built number 48 Chevrolet to two Daytona 500 victories, four wins at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, six at Johnson's home track in California, seven at Texas, eight at Charlotte, nine at Martinsville, and 11 at Dover. They were an unstoppable duo and will fittingly be inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame together on Friday night. Both are first ballot inductees and will be celebrated with Donnie Allison, an original member of the Alabama gang who is joining his brother Bobby in the hall. Allison, winner of 10 Career Cup races, was voted in on the Pioneer ballot. Janet Guthrie, the first woman to race in both the Daytona 500 and Indianapolis 500, is being inducted as the landmark award winner for her contributions to NASCAR. Allison and Noss last October spent time at Charlotte Motor Speedway reminiscing about their careers. Noss is now the vice president of competition for Hendrick Motorsports, where he and Johnson teamed for 81 of Johnson's 83 victories. In professional golf, Johnson scores 10 birdies to earn share of first-round lead. Zach Johnson embraced the pressure of being the U.S. Ryder Cup captain last year, even if the experience didn't go the way anybody on his team hoped. A few months later, Johnson is past all the pressure and the second-guessing, and those newly lightened shoulders might have been a factor in his sizzling round to start the American Express. Johnson made seven of his ten birdies on the front nine on the way to a 10-under 62 and a share of the lead with Sweden's Alex Noren after the first round in the Coachella Valley on Thursday. Johnson's 29 on the front nine was the lowest nine-hole score in his 493 career PGA Tour starts, and he needed only 10 putts to do it. He credited his strong start partly to an off-season of focused preparation after his release from the demands of the Ryder Cup captaincy. Put a lot of good work in as of late, Johnson said. Actually been a lot of normal golf work, given what happened last year with what I was responsible for, which was awesome. Now it's time to get back to work. I've enjoyed the work. I've enjoyed the sweat. Postcard perfect desert conditions and the straightforward nature of this tournament's three courses unsurprisingly led to low scores from some of the world's top players. Rico Hoey and Christian Biesenhout were our one shot back of the leaders and 22 golfers shot 65 or better, including Patrick Cantlay, Xander Shuffley, Justin Thomas, and former champion Si Woo Kim. Johnson made six consecutive birdies to close out his front nine at La Quinta Country Club. He added three more birdies down the stretch, getting the 47-year-old off to a bogey-free start in his quest for his first PGA Tour victory since the 2015 British Open. La Quinta Country Club is legitimately one of the purest places we play on the PGA Tour year in and year out, Johnson said. The grass is, it almost looks fake. If you have it going and you have some sort of rhythm and you're seeing the lines on the putting green because they're pure, you can put a number up. I love this place. I told the assistant pro today if I broke 76 that I should get a free membership, but I don't think that's going to happen. That's unfortunate, but we'll keep working on them.
Now we move on to NBA news. Vucevic, DeRozan, tally 24 each as Bulls top Raptors. Nikola Vucevic had 24 points and 13 rebounds. DeMar DeRozan scored 24 points against his former team, and the Chicago Bulls beat the Toronto Raptors 116-110 on Thursday night. Colby White added 23 points to help the Bulls snap a four-game losing streak in Toronto. Patrick Williams scored 12 points, and Alex Caruso and Ayo Dasanmu each had 10 Chicago outstored Toronto 74-50 to in the paint. Scotty Barnes had 31 points, one shy of his career best for Toronto. R.J. Bartlett added 17 points. And the Knicks defeated the Wizards 113-109. Jalen Brunson had 41 points, 8 rebounds, and 8 assists, leading New York to a home victory over Washington. Brunson scored 18 of the Knicks' 21 points during a lengthy stretch of the fourth quarter, helping them push a one-point lead to 107-97 with a minute and 26 seconds remaining. He finished 14 for 27 from the field and scored at least 30 for the second straight night after missing two games because of a bruised left calf. Julius Randle added 21 points for the Knicks, while Dante DiVincenzo and OG Anobi each had 19. The Knicks improved to eight wins and two losses since Anobi joined the lineup January the 1st after being acquired from Toronto. And the Thunder defeated the Jazz 134-129. Shai Gilgus Alexander scored 31 points. Jalen Williams had 11 of his 27 points in the fourth quarter, and Oklahoma City snapped Utah's six-game winning streak. Williams, who shot 11 of 14, made four three-pointers and has scored at least 25 points in three consecutive games. Kaysen Wallace scored a season-high 16 points, and Josh Giddy had 20 points and 10 rebounds for the Thunder, who had 19 fast-break points. Timberwolves defeated the Grizzlies 118-103. Anthony Edwards scored 26 of his 28 points in the second half. Rudy Gobert had 17 points, 10 rebounds, and a season-high tying sixth blocks. And West-leading Minnesota beat injury-ravaged Memphis at home. Naz Reed scored 20 points. And Mike Connolly had 17 points and 10 assists for the Wolves, who outscored the Grizzlies 37-17 to in the fourth quarter. And the Pacers defeated the Kings 126-121. to Benedict Mathurin scored 25 points, and shorthanded Indiana held off Sacramento at Golden 1 Center. Indiana was without newly acquired forward Pascal Sycam, who had yet to join the team following a trade with Toronto, while fellow All-Star Tyrese Halliburton missed his fifth straight game because of a strained left hamstring. And Warriors Mavs off after assistant death. The Dallas Mavericks game at the Golden State Warriors, scheduled for Friday night, has been postponed following the death of Warriors assistant coach Dijon Milojevic, the NBA announced Thursday. The date for the rescheduled game will be announced later. Milojevic, a mentor to two-time NBA MVP Nikolai Jokic, 
and a former star player in his native Serbia died Wednesday in Utah after suffering a heart attack. Milojevic was part of the staff that helped the Warriors win the 2022 NBA championship. He was 46 years old. Milojevic died in Salt Lake City, where he was hospitalized Tuesday after the medical emergency happened during a private team dinner. And Ujiri says Coloco's status in hands of NBA. Raptors president Masai Ujiri said Thursday that the health status of former Toronto Center Christian Coloco is in the hands of the NBA. Later Thursday, Shams Sharania of the Atlantic reported that Coloco is suffering from a blood clot issue and has been referred to the league's fitness to play panel, preventing him from playing for or practicing with an NBA team. The 23-year-old Coloco was waived Wednesday after the Raptors traded Pascal Sycam to Indiana in exchange for three players. Coloco has not played this season because of what the Raptors called a respiratory issue. Drafted 33rd overall out of Arizona in 2022, Coloco appeared in 58 games with Toronto last season, averaging 3.1 points per game, 2.9 rebounds, and one block. Well, I will do a quick rundown of scores from around the NBA or the NHL, excuse me. The Bruins defeated the Avalanche 5-2 to Thursday night. Sabres 3, Blackhawks 0. Senators 6, Canadians 2. The Fire, Flyers took down the Stars 5-1. to Capitals 5, Blues 2. The Lightning defeated the Wild 7-3. Oilers defeated the Kraken 4-2. Maple Leafs 4, Flames 3. Golden Knights defeated the Rangers 5-1. Predators 2, Kings 1. And the Canucks defeated the Coyotes 2-1. Now we'll read an article from the X-Etiquette heading. It's inside a X entitled, Setting House Rules for Blended Families. Question. My boyfriend and I moved in together in April. We dated for a year prior to deciding to combine our families. I have two daughters, ages 7 and 16. He has a 12-year-old and a 17-year-old son. The oldest is planning to go to college in Hawaii after graduation. Recently, I noticed the vibe is a little different between our oldest children, and I am concerned they may be attracted to each other. What do we do? Ironically, I find parents often categorize kids in two groups. One, my kids. Two, all other kids. And all other kids stretch the truth, sneak out at night, drink alcohol, experiment with drugs, and have physical attractions. So taking this into account, they don't consider that their children, about the same age, may be attracted to each other, and they move in together without the proper checks and balances in place. What are some of the pitfalls they may run into? leaving the kids home alone without adult supervision and the obvious problems that may lead to the impact their relationship and a possible breakup might have on the dynamic of the family, setting an example for the younger children, just to name a few. What are the alternatives? Of course, there is always not moving in together, but that is rarely a consideration. 
The next alternative is that the parents come to an agreement on what is acceptable behavior. Then each parent sits down with their biological child and explains the rules and consequences. Make sure the teen is allowed to consider what the impact of their relationship might have uh, might have on each family member and the family as a whole. After this is done, the parents sit down together with the teenagers and explain the house rules and what is expected. But it's not over. Then I would suggest another discussion with the entire family led by the parents so the younger children understand the rules as well. In this particular case, the parent is observing the teen's behavior and anticipating a possible problem. And if this is brought to the teen's attention, the parent may get a that's gross, don't be ridiculous response. Don't let a response of that sort dissuade the conversation. The teens may not even realize how they are acting or that it could be problematic. Teens believe they have everything under control until they don't. Now the elephant in the room, birth control. Please don't write me about condoning underage sex. I am not. However, it would be naive to believe they are not thinking about it and talking about it among their peers. Because you have an open conversation with your child does not mean you condone their having sex. Make that clear. Make the house rules clear and don't set them up for failure. That's good, good ex etiquette. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, January the 19th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.